And for the rest of you, wow, there goes half the church, <laughs> which is a wonderful thing. For the rest of you guys, you're sticking with me. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. We are nearing the end of the book of Job. We are uh, part eight, uh, week eight in the book of Job, and we have been walking with Job in the midst of his trials. Uh, we've seen Job, uh, the blessed man uh, with abundant riches and kids. We've seen the Lord, uh, by his uh, divine permission, allow Satan to strip him of all of that. We have seen him endure uh, suffering with perseverance. We have seen him endure marital tension. We have seen him endure uh, the false accusation of friendships. And now we have seen him, I don't know if endure is the right word, but we have seen uh, God respond. We have seen Job come face to face with God. Uh, if you recall, Job uh, in the dialogue section uh, accused God of injustice, uh, 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 mentioned in chapters 30 and 31 and 32 that God may not uh, deal right with evil and injustice in the world. And so he finally has his day in court. Job wants to put God on the stand. And what we see and what we have seen last weekend uh, Job's instruction is that Job was the one who found himself on the stand, and God was the one asking the questions. And so we pick up in Job uh, part 8, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Job chapter 40. Uh, we will see the second part of God's speech, uh, Job in, Job's instruction part 2, starting in chapter 40, and we will run all the way up through chapter 42, and then next Sunday we will uh, see the end of the book of Job, Job part 9, and then, Lord willing, we'll have one summary conclusion sermon on the book of Job, what we learn about ourselves from the book of Job, what we learn about God from the, look, uh, from the book of Job, and uh, what we learn about Jesus from the book of Job as well. So that's where we're going. If you would uh, pray with me one more time. Father, we pray now that you would be among us. Spirit, would you come and soften our hearts? Would you come and help us to understand? Would you come and help us to see what you have preserved for us in this text? Uh, Spirit, would you come and use me? Would you use my lips and my words and help me to speak accurately uh, about your word? Help us to be uh, soft and moldable like clay in your hands. We want to be shaped and moved, and as we place our, ourselves in Job's shoes, uh, we want to hear today what it is that you have to say to him and what it is that you have to say to us in the midst of hard times, in the midst of our questions, and in the midst of our accusations, in the midst of our doubts, if you are indeed good, and in the midst of our questions, if you know what you're doing in this world, and if injustice uh, will be taken care of, and if you can handle the evil and the moral uh, dilemma in our world. Indeed you can, and you're going to tell us. And so help us now, we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I think we would all agree that we live in a society where people are quick to take other people to court. Uh, we live in a society where people are quick to sue when they feel like they have been wronged. Uh, we certainly live in a society that is lit litigious, I think is the word, uh, full of litigation is the kind of society that we live in. And oftentimes, I think as a result, what we see is that there are many frivolous lawsuits that come about. I'm sure that you hear of them on the news or uh, in the newspapers every now and then, and you hear about a, a, a lawsuit and you think, they're suing them for that? I mean, you know the kind of cases that I am talking about. I'd like to share one of those cases with you. Um, and... Uh, 
on the brighter side, this case actually gives us hope in the midst of a, of a, a lawsuit happy society. In fact, this story won, and I hope to c- get this right, the Criminal Lawyers Award contest. And so uh, here we go. I'd like to read this story to you. Um, a North Carolina lawyer purchased a box of very rare A true story, by the way. A North Carolina lawyer purchased a box of very rare and inexpensive cigars. He then used them, uh, he then insured them, excuse me, against fire, among other things. Uh, Within a month, having smoked his entire stockpile of these 24 great cigars and without having made even his first premium payment on the policy, uh, the, the lawyer filed claim against the insurance company. In his claim, the lawyer stated that the cigars were lost in a series of small fires. The insurance company refused to pay, of course, citing the obvious reason that he had consumed the cigars in a normal fashion, and that to them and to any judge should be obvious. Uh, The lawyer sued and won. In delivering the ruling, the judge agreed with the insurance company that the claim was indeed frivolous. Uh, The judge stated that nevertheless, the lawyer held a policy uh, from the company in which it had warranted the cigars were insurable and had guaranteed that it would insure them against other things, fire, and here's the catch, without defining what is considered to be unacceptable fire and was obligated to pay the claim. Talk about frivolous lawsuits, but now it, it starts to get interesting. Rather than endure a lengthy and costly appeal process, it accepted the judge's ruling and paid $15,000 for the lawyer uh, to the lawyer for his loss of these rare cigars that had been lost in the fires. Well, after the lawyer uh, cashed the check, the insurance company then had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. With his own insurance claim and testimony from the previous case being used against him, the lawyer was convicted of intentionally burning his insured property, was sentenced to 24 months in jail for each cigarette and a $24,000 fine. (laughs) And I think each of us in our hearts says, yes. (laughs) That's how it should be. We do live in a... Uh, litigious society. We live in a society that we are quick to sue when we feel like we've been wronged. And you know, as we have been reading through the book of Job, uh, Job is much like this lawyer. He has been quick to sue. Uh, And and much like this lawyer who brought his case before uh, the judge and eventually it backfired on him. So the same thing happened to Job. Job uh, gets his day in court before God and his lawsuit falls to pieces as he finds himself face to face with God. He intended to ask God the questions and instead God was asking him the questions. And what we see, uh, what we saw last week is that God took Job on what I would call a whirlwind tour. Uh, God took Job on a tour of the natural uh, created universe. He showed him creation and he showed him the the material world and the natural world and he said Job 
I run all of this smoothly. If I can handle my creation, I can handle what is going on in your life. And what we saw last time is that Job uh, said, um, I've said too much. I didn't know what I was talking about, and I cover my mouth. But while Job was uh, humbled to silence, what we didn't see happen last week is Job withdraw his accusation. He did not retract on his accusation, his formal uh, legal accusation of God being unjust, of God mishandling evil in the universe. And so what God is going to do this morning in chapters 40 and 42 is that God takes up another line of questions. He's not done with Job. Job is not yet to the point of repentance. And so God takes him on a, another tour of, of his created world, and it's going to get interesting this morning. And so the point of Job, uh, of God taking Job on this whirlwind tour of questions is he is going to demonstrate to Job this morning that he can handle injustice, that he can handle evil, that he can handle the moral world. world. Uh, one commentator says this. I think he gets it right. Here God accomplishes, that is in this speech, here God accomplishes more than in the first speech where he merely humbled Job by showing him how he is creator and sustainer of the natural world. Now he will convince Job that he is Lord of the moral order, one whose justice Job cannot discredit. And so what we're going to do this morning is very similar to what we did last Sunday. I would like to make several observations about God's speech. Uh, after we see these observations, then we'll, we'll read the text. We'll simply hear um, God's word, what God has to say in chapters 40 and 42, through 42. Then we'll see Job's response and we'll make some comments about Job's response. And finally, we will do some applications. And so that's that's where we're going to be this morning. So starting off, observations on, Joe, on God's speech. I want to make three observations. So if you're taking notes, number one, uh, the first observation about God's speech is, is regarding the structure. It's actually a very simple structure. There are three parts to this speech, and you'll identify these parts as we read through it. Uh, the first thing that uh, God does is he challenges Job. And so God challenges Job in verses 6 through 14. And he essentially challenges Job's accusation of injustice. And he says, Job, if you think that you can do a better job of handling evil and dealing with injustice, then go right ahead. He says, do you think you can do a better job than me, Job? And so there is a charge. Secondly, in verses 14, uh, excuse me, 15 through 24 of chapter 40, we see God showing Job that he has authority over two animals. And the first animal he talks about is the behemoth, the behemoth, uh, which I believe is a hippo. Um, we'll talk more about that later. But in 14 through 20, uh, 15 through 24, he says, I have the authority over this animal, the behemoth. And then lastly, in chapter 41, God shows uh, that he has authority over the Leviathan, which I believe is an alligator. I don't know how many of you uh, use those, that kind of language in your week. Uh, yeah, have you, did you see that behemoth on the side of the road? Man, man, that Leviathan was sticky out of the water. You know, we don't, we don't use these terms. Uh, we'll explain that in a bit. And so that's the basic structure, three parts. Observation number two. Piggybacking on what I just said, in this speech, God focuses on two animals. 
And so he kind of narrows it down. If you recall, last week, uh, God showed uh, Job the universe and the stars and the the seas and uh, the constellations and the clouds. And then he showed Job a whole plethora of animals that he made to be the way that they are, that he rules over. And so we saw a lot of animals last week. And this is somewhat of a continuation of that because we're going to focus on two animals specifically. Now, God didn't just, you know, oh, I missed the hippo and the the crocodile. Man, I have to go back and, and tell you about them, Job. God chooses these two animals specifically, I believe. And the reason that he chooses these two animals specifically is because of what they represented in that culture, because of what they represented in that culture. The alligator and the hippo in that day, if you read not only uh, all sorts of extra biblical accounts, you will find out that they were symbols of evil, that these animals were symbols of evil and of chaos and of disorder. Uh, It is uh, known that in Egypt, when a new pharaoh would would be inaugurated, he would take a group of men on a hunting trip, and he would go hunting for, guess, which two animals? The hippo and the crocodile, because he wanted to show his authority over chaos. He wanted to show that he, as the ruler, had control over wickedness and evil. And so God chooses these two specific animals, I believe, to show Job that he has control over evil as well, that he has control over the chaos of Job's life. Dr. Roy Zook, I think, summarizes this really well, so I'd like to read this for you. Job had been concerned that God had not dealt with evil, so God was showing Job that he was unqualified to take over God's job of controlling and conquering evil, for he could not even conquer the animal symbols of evil. In fact, God had made these animals as well, which suggests that evil forces are not beyond God's control. And so that is what God is doing, focusing on these animals. In chapter 40, he focuses on the hippo, the behemoth. And essentially, we'll see several things. We'll see its diet, verse 15, what it eats. We'll see how strong it is, 16 through 19. We'll see its habitat, 20 through 23. We'll see its elusiveness, how hard it is to capture a theme throughout this section, verse 24. He then continues on to talk about a leviathan, which I believe is an alligator. And he essentially says... It has uh, physical strength as well. It's so hard to capture. Job, you wouldn't think about even trying to tame it as your pet, verses 1 through 11. He then goes on a lengthy rant about the anatomy of the alligator, verses 12 through 27. And then finally, in 26 through 34, he talks about the futility of trying to hunt it down. And so, point number two. God focuses on these animals. Now, I want to make a quick point here about the alligator. Um, uh, The point that God is saying, and, and we'll see this as we read it, is, man, who dare try to capture this thing? I mean, who dare try to wrestle with this? It's vicious. It has no mercy. Apparently, uh, the alligator hunter hasn't really read this section <laughs> in the book of Job. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the late Steve Irwin, uh, a.k.a. the alligator hunter. Um, apparently, 
uh, he didn't get God's memo about the alligator. And so um, he tangles with these things. And I want to show you guys just a quick clip uh, about uh, one encounter that he has had with the alligator. Uh, the point is, God says, they're mean and vicious, and you shouldn't tangle with them. So hard and fast from the water's edge that their prey doesn't get enough time to squeak after they've been hit. What? Grabs my hand back into the water so quick that my backup couldn't do a thing about it. His teeth penetrated straight through my hand. A dangerous mistake that I'll never make again. It's quick. Real quick. Okay. That hurt. Oh, I bet it did. (laughs) Um, You know... It's hard for us to compete with that, uh, but, but God is going to draw a vivid picture about how just really silly uh, it is to try to tangle with an alligator in real life. And God's point is, uh, I can handle evil and injustice in the world. Uh, number three, I want to make an observation about uh, God's method, if you will. God's methodology. We've seen the structure. We've seen the focus. Um, God's method here. God, I believe, uh, although speaks strong words to Job, I don't think his aim is to humiliate Job. I don't think his aim is to make Job smaller than Job is. I think his point is to show Job that he can be trusted in every aspect of life. That's God's point. Uh, One commentator by the name of Anderson says this about God's method. The argument to the superior strength of God is made. God says, I'm strong. Not to discourage men from trying to have dealings with God, but to enhance God's capability of managing the affairs of the universe so that men will trust him. So that men will trust him. And so God is going to speak to Job and say, Job, you can trust me. You can trust me with evil. You can trust me with injustice. You can trust me in your life. And so let's do this. We are going to read um, this second speech starting in verse 40 all the way through, starting in verse, uh, cha- excuse me, chapter 40, uh, and it starts in verse 6. And we're going to hear from the Lord. Remember we said last week that these two speeches combined for, for the most, the longest speech of God himself in the scripture. And so it's important that we hear from him. And so we're going to read starting in verse, um, let's see, starting in verse... Six. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. Gird up your loins, literally. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Notice that. Have you an arm like God? Can you, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Symbols of strength? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And so he says, you think you can do a better job, uh, a job of justice, Job? Well, then why don't you go ahead? Verse 15, behold, behemoth, which I made 
as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power is in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like the bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. God says, only I can really tangle with this animal. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him up. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? And then he moves on to the crocodile, Leviathan. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The image there is can you uh, get in a boat and can you bring this animal back into the boat with you? Uh, By way of segment here, um, I grew up in South Texas and one of the ugly fish down in South Texas is called a garfish. Has anyone ever heard of a garfish before? Okay, some of you fishermen. What you know about a garfish is that if you catch one on your line, you don't dare want to try to reel them in because they look a lot like an alligator. They have this long beak and these sharp teeth And if you happen to reel that sucker into your boat, there's a good chance it is going to bite you and it's going to hurt. And so you get uh, one on your line and you're like, oh, this is so hard. I've got a huge fish. And dad's like, you got a gar. Just cut it. Cut the line. (laughs) You know, just cut the line. We don't want that baby up here. Don't even try. And that's what God is saying about the Leviathan. Verse three, notice the irony here. Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to make him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? (laughs) Basically what he's saying is, you're not going to take an alligator home as a pet. He's not going to come up to you and say, are you having a wonderful day? How are you doing? Can I get you anything? He's not going to speak soft words to you. You're not going to put a leash on him and say, here, young daughter, take this to school. That's what God is saying in irony. He's not going to, you're not going to do that. Verse six, will traders bargain over him? Will they divide up, uh, divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skins with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Yeah, Steve Irwin, right? Uh, Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Catch this. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silent concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. And so we get this description of what he looks like. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made up of rows of shields cut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to one another that no air can come between them. They're joined Uh, To one another, they clasp each other and cannot be separated. 
His sneezings, and a bit of uh, poetry here, his sneezings flash forth lightning, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coal, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid at the crashing there beside themselves. Though the sword reach him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotted wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for, he, for him sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment, uh, picturing what he looks like as he comes out of the water. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired, picturing the crest of the wave. On earth, there is none like his. A creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. Notice this. He is king over all the sons of pride. And so we have seen God's second speech. He takes us at at an up-close look of these two animals, of the hippopotamus, I believe, and the crocodile. And so how do you think Job's going to respond? Last time he said, oops, I've said too much, God. I'm not going to say any more. But he was not repentant. He did not repent. Do you think that this is going to be enough? What we're going to see is Job's response, uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. And Job, I think, is going to respond in three ways. And so if you're taking notes, jot these down. The first thing I think Job does is he recognizes He recognizes God's sovereignty. He recognizes that God indeed is sovereign and he does what he wishes in in his life and in our life and and in all of his creation. Read with me verse two. Verse two. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so the first thing that Job says is that you can do whatever you want. God, whatever you intend, whatever is your pleasure, whatever is your purpose, whatever you desire, no one can thwart it. No one can stop it. You are invincible, if you will. And he recognizes God's sovereignty over all the world. And most importantly, he recognizes his sovereignty in his life. God's sovereignty in Job's life. Dr. Zuck, again, says it well. Job's concession mean that, means that he believes that everything occurring on earth, including his suffering, takes place within the framework of the divine wisdom. And so he says, God, I recognize that you do whatever it is that you do, and no one can stop you. He recognizes God's sovereignty. Not only that, he recognizes God's perfect knowledge. Secondly, he recognizes that God has infinitely greater knowledge, has infinitely more perfect understanding, has infinitely greater wisdom than he does. Verse 3, read that with me. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things, notice this, too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He repeats God's accusation. Remember, God accused Job. God said this to Job. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Remember, that's what he said to Job. He says, Job, you're darkening counsel. You don't really know what you're talking about. And then Job repeats that to say, you're right. That's what I have been doing. I have been hiding counsel without knowledge. And then he says this, uh, I, I have uttered things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, things I didn't know. And so he recognizes God's knowledge, that God does things even when he doesn't understand them, that God allows things even though Job doesn't understand why, that God sees the panorama of the big picture of life even though he cannot. He has perfect knowledge and he knows what he's doing. So he recognizes God's sovereignty. He recognizes God's perfect knowledge. Third, very simply, he repents of his sin. His third response is that he repents and he retracts of his sin. Not of the sins that his friends accused him of, not of any sins before the trial, but I believe of the sin of pride, of the sin of thinking that he could be so boisterous to think that he is on the same level with God, that he can think that he can call God into account. And so verses four and five. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Again, he's repeating the words of God. This is what God said to Job. God said to Job, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me, remember? And Job says, yes, you're right. You're right. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but but now my eyes see you. I have heard about you. I thought I understood, God, who you were. I thought I understood how you worked, but now I've seen you. Now I have encountered you. Now I see you in a totally different light, and I've seen what you have revealed to me. And this is his response, verse 6, therefore... I despise myself. Your translation may say something to the fact of recant or retract. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. Here, I believe Job formally takes his, um, his accusation, his subpoena of God, if you will, off the table. He says, I still wanted to bring you to court no longer. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to put you on the stand. I renege on my accusation. I retract my summons, God, to bring you to, to court, and I repent of the pride of even thinking that I could do that. No more questions, no more demands, no more accusations. What we see is that Job says, I have seen you afresh. I have seen what you have revealed to me, who you are, that you're trustworthy and that you can handle injustice and that you can handle evil and you can handle the suffering in my life even though I don't understand it and I don't know why. You've not answered me, but I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. And so that section draws to a close. Next week, what we're going to see is uh, the epilogue. How, uh, how does the story end? Is God going to bless Job again? What about his friends? They still have accused him of all of these things. Is God going to put them straight? Well, that will be left to next week. But before we do that, as we wrap up here, I want to make three applications. And so if you're writing down notes, jot these three things down. 
The first application, I think, and there are many from this passage, the first application that applies to our life is this. Nothing enters our life without God's permission. That is something that is clear throughout the book of Job from the very beginning to the very end. But I want to reiterate it. It's a big, significant part of what the book of Job is teaching us, that nothing enters our life without God's permission. Uh, Rick Warren, I'm sure you're all familiar with Rick Warren and the Purpose Driven Life and the Purpose Driven Church and you know all that he says and does. He says this in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. I know several of you have read it. In one chapter, he says this, regardless of the cause, none of your problems could happen without God's permission. Everything that happens to a child of God is father-filtered. Love that. Everything that happens to a child of God is father-filtered, and he intends to use it for good, even when Satan and others mean it for bad. And so with a sovereign God, which allows, there's nothing that happens to us or to anyone else without his permission. There are no flukes. There is no coincidence. There are no accidents. There's no such thing as luck if you believe in the sovereign God that Job does. And so whatever your situation might be this morning, it may be a Job-like situation. You may have a Job-like situation in the future. You may have had a Job-like situation in the past. What Job and what God through the, the scripture wants us to understand is that it is a father-filtered event and that we can take heart knowing that our sovereign and wise and all-knowing God is working for his glory and for our good. It is father-filtered. Nothing enters our life without God's permission. Secondly, second application is we we don't need to know why we suffer. We don't need to know why we suffer if we know God while we suffer. That, I think, may be the overarching theme of the entire book of Job. We don't need to know why we suffer if we know God while we suffer. What Job teaches us is that what we need most in the dark time, in the difficult time, when there's questions, when there's doubts, when there's health issues, when there's job issues, when there's financial stress, when our kids are not acting the way they should, when there's tension in the marriage or in the family, or whatever it may be, Whatever it may be, what Job and what God intends for us to know is that what we need most in those circumstances is not relief, it's God. What we need most is God himself. Dr. Constable says this, Job forgot his cry for vindication since he had, catch this, since he had received something much better. A revelation of the person of God and renewed fellowship with God. We do not need to know why if we know God. And so while answers are nice and explanations would be helpful and a big picture to see what God is doing would certainly be wonderful, um, what we need most in suffering is a bigger picture of God. What we need most when it hurts is to see a glorious, majestic, awe-inspiring picture of God's sovereignty, of his wisdom, of his care, of his ability to handle evil. Because when Job saw that, he did not need any more explanations. And so how about you? 
Do you know God better in the midst of suffering? Is your peace increasing and is it stronger than ever? Is your trust in the goodness of God in spite of maybe your circumstance growing? Most importantly, is that enough? Is he enough? Number three, nothing enters our life without God's permission. If we know God while we suffer, that's all we need to know. And number three, very simply put, some of us may need to retract our accusations. Some of us may need to retract or recall our accusations against God and turn from our pride and repent. That's what Job did. Job recognized that he put himself on the level of God. He accused God of injustice. He accused God of not knowing what he was doing. He accused God of treating him unfairly because of the suffering that he was dealing with. And he ended up repenting of that. And so maybe, boy, maybe Job sounds very familiar to you. Maybe the words of Job that we saw a couple weeks ago, maybe the accusations, maybe, maybe you in your heart of hearts would agree with Job and you would say, if I had a chance to put God on the stand and explain himself, I would. Maybe in your heart of hearts that has rid, uh, risen to that level. And maybe you, seeing God afresh, need, need to have your heart melted like, like butter over sweet corn and repent. Maybe you need to take the steps that Job has. I don't know what it is that you're suffering with. I don't know the questions that you're dealing with. I don't know what it is that you're wrestling with. I don't know what you're accusing God of. If not today, maybe tomorrow, uh, as it brings the trouble of its own. But maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to spend a quick moment in prayer. Maybe you need to bow your heart and your face before God and say, God, I've seen who you are. I trust you. I trust you. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. And so this morning, I think the question that I would like to leave you with and the question I'd like to leave myself with is this. Are we going to continue to pursue our litigation with God? Job has said enough. I will not continue my litigation with God. Will you continue to pursue your litigation with God? Are you going to be like the North Carolina lawyer who will continue to pursue litigation? Or will you be like Job? Will you pull it off of the table? Will you retract it? Will you recognize God is sovereign? Will you recognize that that his knowledge is far above yours? And will you repent in dust and ashes having seen God for all he is worth. Would you pray with me?